0: With you this morning, if you would take your Bibles and open with me to John chapter 2, Gospel according to John chapter 2, where we find the account of Jesus' first miracle, at least here in John's Gospel. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 is going to be our focus. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our everlasting good in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time now in His Word. Heavenly Father, we do ask you now that you would please help us by your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us illumination, that you would strengthen our faith through the consideration of your Word, that you would feed us, God, from the Scriptures, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that your church, Father, would be strengthened. For life and for godliness. Lord, I pray that you would please keep me from error as I seek to unfold your word to your people. This is your church, God. These are your people. It's your word. We pray for your help, Father. Please give me grace to be faithful to the text of scripture today. Please give your church discernment, Father. In a, in a very twisted and evil age, we need discernment. To hold fast to the truth. And so we pray that you would give us that today. That you would help us to be discerning. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Friends, our passage today is clearly quite significant in the Gospel of John. The event itself is profound as Jesus turns water into wine. The placement of the event is purposeful as it's the very first sign that Jesus did in his ministry that John records for us in this gospel. The outcome of the event is important as well as Jesus' disciples believe in him, the text tells us. So clearly, this is a significant moment in the gospel according to John. It's a significant moment in Jesus' ministry. And yet, there's a big and yet here. What does this significant moment mean exactly? What does it mean? It's a well-known miracle of Jesus, but what exactly is the point? The range of answers is rather revealing when you seek to find out what, what's the point of this miracle. The, the range of answers is rather revealing. For example, Roman Catholic interpreters will tell you that this passage proves that Mary is the mediator between us and Jesus. We can't go to Jesus on our own, they say, but Mary can go to him and Jesus will listen to his mother. That's what Roman Catholic interpreters say, but the only way that interpretation is right is if you ignore the text. We're going to find out that the exchange between Jesus and Mary is teaching us something rather different than that. Other people rely heavily on symbolism to discern the meaning of the text. So, for example, there are six stone water jars at the wedding, but seven, you know, is the biblical number of completion. And so, the point of this passage is that the joy of the wedding was incomplete because they only had six jars, and Jesus makes up the lack of joy. That's creative. But that creativity misses some connections with the Old Testament, as we're going to see. Other people say the point of the passage is, well, they say things that are true that hardly need to be said. They say that the point of this passage is that Jesus doesn't condone drunkenness. Even though he turns the water into wine, he doesn't condone drunkenness. Well, of course he doesn't. But this passage has nothing to do with whether or not a Christian should consume wine. It's not hardly the point at all. That's a different sermon. So what exactly is the point of this text? Well, I'll argue that the Apostle John tells us the point. He tells us where to look. It's in verse 11, where John says that this sign manifested Jesus' glory so that his disciples believed in him. That's the point. This passage is not about Finding some role for Mary. It's not about overplaying the symbolism of certain elements. Rather, the way to understand this miracle is to look for the glory of Christ that is on display so that our faith in the Lord Jesus is strengthened. That's the way to get the right interpretation. How do we know that? Because John tells us that's the right interpretation in verse 11. This is a passage about the glory of Christ. That's what we're going to think about today the glory of Christ. Now, before we do that, before we get to the exposition, I want to pause here and just say something about how to interpret the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. For the longest time, whenever I read the Gospels, I struggled to understand why there were so many miracles in the Gospel accounts. Why are there so many? And my struggle was due to the fact that I was thinking about the miracles as displays of Jesus' power and little else. But that's just it. Jesus' miracles are not simply powerful acts intended to astound us. They are not spiritualized magic tricks that confound the imagination. That's not the case at all. In fact, the Apostle John's presentation is very helpful at this point. Notice the word that John uses in verse 11. He calls this a sign. John rarely, if ever, uses the word miracle or mighty deed in in his gospel. He uses the word sign. And that's significant because the word sign captures the point of Jesus' miracles. Each miracle is a sign pointing your attention to the Lord Jesus and to his glory. That's a good rule of thumb when you're reading the gospels. Don't get so focused on the miracle that you miss the one doing it. Jesus. So yes, Jesus walks on water, and that's incredible, but it's incredible because the Old Testament said that God Himself treads on the waves of the storm. Yes, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish, but that's because in the Old Testament, God promised that He would come and shepherd His people and He Himself would feed them on the mountains of Israel. That's why the feeding of the 5,000 is significant. Don't get so focused on the miracle that you miss the one doing the miracle. Do you see the connection? Miracles are more than power, they're signs. Intended to show us the glory of God in human flesh in Jesus Christ. They're signs revealing to us the glory of the Lord. And so it is with this passage. The turning of water into wine is not just astounding or confounding. It's a sign that reveals to us two aspects of Jesus' glory as the Christ. This is where we're going. Two aspects about Jesus' glory as the Christ. Let me give them to you in advance just so you can know how best to listen. In verses 1 to 5, we're going to see the glory of Jesus's obedience. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see the glory of Jesus's provision. Obedience, provision. Jesus's person and work. That's what we're going to focus on today. Let's start then in verses 1 to 5 with the glory of Jesus' absolute obedience. That's point number one. The glory of Jesus' absolute obedience. John gives us the setting and it's a celebration. Look again at verses 1 and 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So this appears to be a family occasion. Mary is present. Along with Jesus and his siblings, Jesus' disciples are also there, which tells us that Jesus is already recognized as a teacher. The wedding takes place in Cana, which is just up the road from Nazareth. It's also Nathaniel's hometown. So this is a public event, but it's got a family feel to it, you might say. These are people that Jesus would have known. In Jesus' day, a wedding included not just a ceremony, but then a feast Or a party that lasted for several days. And that seems to be what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples have come to to the party, to the feast. And at this feast, the bridegroom, as a display of his love for his bride, would have been responsible to provide everything for the party. So the meal, the refreshments, all that stuff. That was all the bridegroom's responsibility was a way that he could show that he was going to love his bride well and if he failed to provide everything that was needed that would have been that would have been rather bad (laughs) a rather bad way to start off your your marriage and this explains why in verse 3 Mary comes to Jesus with a problem look again verse 3 when the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine So we have a developing situation, you might say. The lack of wine reflected badly on the groom. Perhaps Mary was helping with the meal, and that's how she knows about the problem. However she knows, she comes to Jesus to inform him. And here's the first question that we have to answer as we're studying this passage. Why does Mary tell Jesus about this? What does she expect him to do? Remember, this entire passage is about Jesus' first sign in the Gospel of John. So it's not as though he has done miracles before. And the biblical Gospels are surprisingly silent about the childhood of Jesus. The only account we get of Jesus' childhood is in Luke when Jesus is, goes to the temple there. Uh, remember when he gets disconnected from his parents. So there are, there's no biblical evidence that the child Jesus liked to, to do miracles in order to amuse people. There's no evidence of that. So again, why does Mary come to Jesus with this question? What does she expect him to do? Well, we don't know exactly. Exactly. A number of commentators suggest that Mary simply knew Jesus to be resourceful, and so she could count on him when situations were difficult. That, that may be the case, but the text is not definitive. The most we can say is that Mary has some expectation that Jesus will do something. And it's here that the passage takes a rather surprising turn. This is where obedience comes into play, but it's not Jesus' obedience to Mary. It's his obedience to his heavenly Father. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the address that Jesus uses for his mother here is somewhere between distant and courteous. Uh, If you're a child here today, I would not recommend you calling your mother woman. It's somewhere between distant and courteous. He's being polite. It's a polite term for sure. It's not rude. But this is not the typical way that you would address your mother in Jesus' day. It has a certain formality to it that keeps the person at an arm's length. And that's probably the best way to describe Jesus' address. He's being polite. He's being courteous. But he's not necessarily endearing. This is then followed up with a rather blunt question. Look again at verse 4. What does this have to do with me? That's essentially a correction, a rebuke. This is not my concern, Jesus says. This is not my problem. That doesn't mean he's going to refuse to help, as the rest of the passage makes clear. But he does want Mary to understand that he operates with a different agenda, perhaps, than she has in mind. And that's made abundantly clear by the end of verse 4. Where are Jesus' priorities with his heavenly Father? Look again at the end of verse 4. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Clearly the key here is that reference to Jesus' hour. This, that phrase, this idea of Jesus' hour, it shows up all through John's gospel. You can go home and look it up for yourself It shows up all through John's gospel, and the reference is almost always to Jesus' glory revealed at the cross. His hour is the hour of the cross, where the Father glorifies the Son. In fact, the turning point of the book, chapter 13, hinges on this idea of Jesus' hour. Chapter 13, right before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world. And from that point forward in John, from chapter 13 until the end, everything is running towards the cross. Everything moves towards Jesus's passion so that by the time we get to his final prayer in John 17, Jesus prays that the hour has come for the Father to glorify his Son. How does the Father glorify his Son? By lifting him up on the cross. The hour is the moment of Jesus's glory revealed In and through his cross. So back to verse 4. Here in chapter 2. When Jesus says his hour has not yet come. He means that his father's plan is still unfolding. It's still being worked out. The time has not come for the full revelation of Jesus' glory. It's not that time yet. To say it a different way. Jesus' life follows the father's timetable. Not Mary's. And friends, I'll argue that that's the takeaway of these opening verses. This is why Jesus speaks to Mary the way that he does. His ministry has has begun, and his absolute priority is to obey his heavenly Father. And therefore, every other earthly relationship is subordinate to that, even the relationship with his mother. Every other immediate concern is second to this ultimate priority for Jesus, the Son of God, to carry out His Father's will in perfect obedience. I mean, you remember the call of discipleship that Jesus gives to His own followers. No one can be my disciple unless he hates his father and mother and brother and sister and takes up his cross and follows me. That means that your ultimate allegiance lies with God, not with anything else. That's what Jesus is displaying here. Already, already, he's fixed his eyes upon the cross. Already, Christ has determined to do what the Father has given him to do. Friends, this is a good reminder for how we ought to think about the gospel. There's a connection here that should deepen our wonder in our worship. We often make the mistake of reading the gospel story as though these events are unfolding on autopilot. We we know these things so well that we take for granted the fact that the reason the gospel unfolds the way that it does is because Jesus is committed to obeying God. The cross doesn't happen on autopilot. The cross happens because Jesus obeyed his father with absolute commitment. Yes, it was God's sovereign will for His Son to die. But God's sovereign will was carried out in the flesh and blood life of Jesus. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father's will. Jesus humbled Himself and chose to obey His Father all the way to the cross, even to the point of death. That means, friends, that as much as we praise God for the death of Jesus, we should also praise God for the obedience of Jesus. Our salvation hinges on both of those realities. We are saved because Jesus died in our place, bearing the wrath of God that we should have received. And we are saved because Jesus obeyed in our place, where we would not obey, where we would not submit to the Father's will, where we would not count all other agendas second to God's. We're saved by both the death and the obedience of Jesus. You see how both aspects are essential to our salvation? Both his life, he obeys God, and his death. He submits to the Father. We need both the death of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus. And we're reminded of that right here at the outset of his ministry. Right here in this seemingly passing conversation with his mother. It's Jesus' closest earthly relationship. And it's second to his priority to following His Father. His hour has not yet come, so praise God for the obedience of Jesus Christ, for on that obedience we are saved. This brings us to another interpretive crossroads. There's a bunch of them in this passage. Another interpretive crossroads. Verse 4, Jesus is committed to the Father above everything else, but in verse 5, It appears that Mary still expects him to do something. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And as we know, Jesus goes on to perform the sign. So here's the crossroads. If you would have found me on Wednesday, this is what I would have been sitting in my office thinking about. If Jesus is committed to his Father's will, then why does he still do the sign? The answer, again, is verse 11. (laughs) Verse 11. Who sees the glory of the sign? The disciples see it. Verse 11. The disciples see it and believe. So, this sign has a very narrow audience. Jesus is not doing this for everyone. He's doing it for the disciples. Andreas Kostenberger, in his very fine commentary, calls this a quiet miracle. A behind-the-scenes miracle. The focus is not on the crowd. The focus is on the disciples. And that's why Jesus still does the sign. It's true that his hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for the cross and the final revealing of his glory. But, and this is the key, this is the time for Jesus to teach his disciples. This is the time for Jesus to strengthen his disciples' faith. This is the moment to show the disciples a little bit more of who he is and what he has come to do. For that reason, Jesus performs the sign. In a way, he's saying to Mary, I'm not going to do this in the way that you want me to do it. I'm going to do it in the way that reveals my purpose, which is to be focused on my followers at this point. That's the bridge to our second point. With a focus on the disciples, Jesus in verses 6 to 11 reveals the glory of his all-sufficient provision. That's point number two. The glory of Jesus' all-sufficient provision. Beginning in verse 6, the circumstances are quickly recounted. It's rapid fire. The key here is Jesus' command. Everything happens at Jesus' command. You can follow along with me. Verse 6 John describes the particulars of the miracle. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. As you can tell, that's a lot of water. I don't know what the number is because I'm not good at math. It's a lot of water that's going to become wine. And that means the quantity of the miracle is substantial. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Verse 7, Jesus begins to give the instructions. Jesus said to the servants, "'Fill the jars with water.'" And they filled them up to the brim. Again, Jesus' command is the driving force. His word is pushing things ahead. Verse 8, Jesus gives the next step. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Notice that nothing else is done to the jars. Jesus doesn't say a prayer. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't put anything in the water. The only thing that is happening is Jesus giving his instructions. Jesus' command That's the driving force of the sign. Verse 9, everything changes. Better yet, everything is revealed. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the water has now become wine and the only change has been Jesus speaking. Jesus' command. In fact, John narrates the sign in this way in order to show you there's no other possible explanation. Only Jesus' command. John went step by step so that we would understand without any doubt Jesus has done this and he's done it only with his word. His command has made all of the difference. Now, we need to stop here and think for a moment about the nature of the miracle. John goes out of his way to highlight a few significant points that should get our attention about the nature of the miracle. First of all, there's the quantity of the wine six jars of 20 to 30 gallons. That means there's more than enough to meet the needs of the moment. The quantity is impressive. Along with that, there's also the quality of the wine verse 10 verse 10 makes it clear Jesus's wine was better than the wine that came before it was so good that the host is surprised typically you'd serve the good stuff first and the bad stuff later but that's why it's so significant Jesus's provision is excellent the quality exceeds the needs of the moment finally there's the timing of the provision in a way In a way, the groom at this wedding has fallen down on his job. He was responsible to provide for the feast, and failing to do so was not good. The bridegroom's provision was insufficient. Not so with Jesus. Even though the groom doesn't know how this happened, Jesus has met the need. He's provided where the bridegroom fell short. His timing then, Jesus' timing, was just what was needed. So put those things together. Quantity, quality, timing. Jesus' provision is more than sufficient to meet the needs of the moment. When it appeared that there was no way out of this, Jesus intervened. That's the nature of the miracle. But how does this reveal Jesus' glory? That's been our touchstone for the whole message And here we come face to face with the question. It's clear that Jesus meets a physical need that keeps someone from an embarrassing situation. That's very nice of him. But how does that reveal his glory? What's the significance here? Well, to answer that question, I'll tell you what I did. (laughs) To answer that question, I looked up every reference to wine in the Old Testament prophets. I looked up every reference to wine in all of the Old Testament prophets. It was remarkably fruitful. <laughs> I didn't even think that was going to be funny. I just wrote that. It was remarkably fruitful. Look, when it comes to the Bible, one of our convictions is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So the best way to understand the Bible is to look for other parts of the Bible that shed light on the portion that you're studying. So it's foundational, really. Scripture interprets Scripture. So I was sitting at my desk. I'm telling you, this is behind the curtain, sermon prep. I'm sitting at my desk going, why is this significant? Look up all the references to wine in the Old Testament prophets. Here's what I learned. In the prophets, the withdrawal of God's presence and the coming of God's judgment were often symbolized as the loss of wine and grain. So Isaiah 24 is a good example. Isaiah 24 predicts God's judgment on the whole earth. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, Isaiah says. And when that happens, it's described like this, Isaiah 24:11. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark, the gladness of the earth is banished. So the loss of wine pictured the judgment of God, even the loss of his presence. But amazingly, the inverse was also true. All through the prophets, when the time came for God to restore his people, that restoration was symbolized in an abundance of excellent wine and grain. Isaiah 25, the very next chapter, is a good example. Isaiah 25, God promises that he's going to swallow up death forever. And on the day that God swallows up death forever, he spreads a feast on the mountaintop for his people. And you can guess what God serves at this feast. Isaiah 25, verse 6, on the mountain of the Lord of hosts God will make for his people a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Again, don't get hung up on the question of whether or not it's okay to drink wine. That's not the point of this passage. The point is that the day of God's victory, the day of God drawing near to his people, the day of restoration was symbolized with what? Abundant wine in good quality. Quality and quantity. And listen, Isaiah 25 is just one example. Jeremiah 31, Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9. They're all making the same point. This almost miraculous outpouring of well-aged wine was a symbol of God's presence renewed. It was a symbol that God was drawing near to his people to make them whole and right and free and righteous. It was a picture of God's grace even. Grace to restore His people who are lost. So, Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible. Make the connection with John chapter 2. Why does Jesus choose this moment of all moments for His first sign? Why does He choose the water into wine as this first miracle? Because it was a clear and unmistakable messianic act of power and presence. It was a way of saying to His disciples, Do you want to know who I am? Do you want to see who I am? I'm God in the flesh, drawing near to restore you and to make God's people whole again. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not just merely a teacher. I'm the Messiah. It's unmistakably clear. By turning the water into wine, Jesus reveals Himself to be the Christ. The one through whom God would Make his people new. He's the Christ who brings God's people into God's presence. It is an astounding display of Jesus' identity. And for those with eyes to see, it's unmistakable. But it goes deeper. Don't you love the Bible? (laughs) It goes deeper. The nature of the miracle also tells us something about the nature of Jesus' work. Just as the provision of wine was more than enough, so also Jesus' work as the Christ will be more than enough. The overwhelming quantity and the exceedingly excellent quality testify to the power and effectiveness of Jesus' blood. Don't miss the connection between the cup at the table, the blood at the cross the new wine, the messianic, all these strands of biblical teaching are coming together and they're coming together in the gospel. (laughs) Jesus' blood will cleanse even the vilest sinner. His grace is deeper than any sin. Friends, those are not platitudes. Those are biblical truths from God designed to refresh our souls. The water to wine was more than enough for this feast and the work of Christ is more than enough for the salvation of his people. What a glorious thought. Just take a moment to just soak this in. Our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, never fails to provide what his bride needs. Someone asked me, what do you think the church is going to be like in a post-pandemic world? And I said, I have no idea. But I know that the Lord's provision is enough. Our bridegroom's feast will never be cut short. Have you ever had one of those moments, maybe with friends or with family, and you're sitting in the moment and you're thinking, I wish this would never end? Friend, that's a foretaste of heaven. The bridegroom's feast will never be cut short. Our bridegroom has made every provision for us to enter God's presence and feast forever. His work is sufficient, friends. His work is sufficient. I said last week that the road of discipleship is fueled by seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This passage is an example of what I mean. And I pray that we don't miss it. The glory of verse 11 is not simply that Jesus does a miracle. The glory of verse 11 is that he is a savior whose blood is more than enough to meet whatever need you bring to him. More than enough. His provision is all sufficient for the life of his church. It is astounding. How should we respond? Well, verse 11 tells you how you should respond. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Here it is, and his disciples believed in him. Friends, faith in Christ is the only response to the truth of who Jesus is. Faith in Christ is how we see and embrace the glory of a Savior. And I want to make this point as clear as I can. Notice that John says the disciples believed in Jesus. They didn't believe in general. They didn't have a vague belief in God that he might do some stuff that would be good. They believed in Jesus specifically and personally. Their faith was rooted in Christ. Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, then this is how God's word calls you to respond. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Conscious, clear faith in who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And this text of the Bible makes clear that Jesus Christ is more than enough to save you from your sin. Look, I don't know, if you're not a Christian today, I don't know how precisely you ended up at church. Maybe you came to church thinking that Christianity was all about cleaning yourself up first so that God would welcome you into His presence. Or maybe you came to church today and you were thinking... Christianity has got some good news, but my, you don't know all the things that I've done. <laughs> my sin's too big. My, my, my offense against God is, is too heinous. There, there's no good news for a person like me at church. Friends, I hope that this passage from God's Word will dispel those thoughts from your mind as powerfully as light dispels darkness. The provision of God in Jesus Christ is more than enough to meet any need of salvation. In fact, the good news of the gospel is that your worst sin is no match for the all-sufficient grace of Christ. I've done horrible things in my life. And the good news is that God's grace is enough to cover those horrible things. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that the blood of Christ is enough to cleanse the worst sinner and His blood will never fail. And so amazingly, if you're you're not a Christian today, maybe you just came with a friend or maybe your mom and dad brought you to church. If you're not a Christian, the way that you respond to this good news, amazingly, is to trust Jesus. You confess that you have defied God. You've confessed that you're a sinner. If you are Here today, recognizing that you're a sinner, good news, you're in welcome company. We're sinners too. You confess that you've defied God and that on your own you could never come into His presence. But then you believe that God, through Jesus Christ, has done all that was necessary to deal with your sin. Friends, that's what faith in Christ is. It's the confession and the recognition that on your own, you've got nothing to bring you into the presence of God, but through Christ, God accepts you and forgives you in his son. That's saving faith. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then this is the good news that God calls you to believe in Jesus. There is more than enough to deal with the worst of what you have done. So won't you trust him today? Brothers and sisters, on some level, the application is the same for those of us who are Christians. (laughs) Whether you have been a Christian for one year or 50 years, you need the gospel as much today as you did the first day that you believed. I'm going to keep preaching this as long as you will have me. You need the gospel as much today as you did the first day that you believed. The reality is that even after we become a Christian... We still struggle with sin. I wish that someone would have told me that on day one of being a Christian. Even after you become a Christian, we still struggle with sin. We often sin willingly, even purposefully. What do you do in those moments? Do you hide it? That can't be the right thing to do. Do you deny it? No, that's self-righteousness. That leads bad places. What do you do? You own it. Confess it and believe that there's more than enough grace to cover the sins of God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ. His provision is enough. Friends, the water into wine is telling you how to live every day as a Christian. You live dependent upon the sufficient provision of Jesus Christ. You live by faith. His work is sufficient, not just on the first day that you become a Christian, but every day. Every day that you walk by faith. So when you have fallen into sin, when you have grieved the Father by not obeying His commandments, you do what you see in verse 11. You trust Christ. I I don't know why we undersell the importance of daily repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. Friends, that's the normal Christian life. Every day, you believe and by grace, you return again to follow the Lord by faith That's really what I want the believer to take away from today's message. Seeing Christ and believing His provision is the normal course of the Christian life. This is how the glory of Christ is revealed in the gospel. And it's how His glory meets the everyday needs of discipleship. Christians are not sinless people. We're still sinners. But we're sinners who see by faith the glory of Christ and who believe by faith that Christ's provision is enough, that it's enough for even me to conform me into His image and even you. So what's John chapter 2 about? The water into wine. It's clearly significant. It's the first sign, the first instance of Jesus revealing His glory and that's just it. It's glory, friends. That's what John 2 is about At every step, Christ was committed to obeying His Father. And in fulfillment of God's Word, His provision for His church is more than enough. And so the way that we respond is by praising God for the all-sufficient gospel of the obedient Son. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You. For the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, and was obedient to you even to the point of death, death on a cross. We thank you, God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray now that you would please exalt him in our hearts, that we would love Christ more. We pray that you would exalt him in our church. That this congregation would be known as a place where the gospel is treasured. Where Christ is cherished. Where sinners are changed by grace. And where the good news goes, Father, out of these walls to the very ends of the earth. Please exalt Christ here. God, we plead with you. Our efforts are never enough, but Christ's work is sufficient for his bride. Thank you for saving us, God. We pray now that his grace would meet the needs that we have to do the ministry you've called us to do. Oh God, help us. We pray and we plead that you would please exalt your son in and through this church so that all the nations would see that Christ is enough. We pray in his name, amen.